Welcome back to Deep Focus. I'm Quaid, and I'm here with my co-host and friend, Nicholas Galligan. How you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. I'm doing good. Um, I went and saw Akira 4K in theaters yesterday. Oh, nice. Have you seen Akira? I assume you've seen it. I have. Yeah, I've seen it twice. Okay, yeah, this is my second time as well. I don't understand that movie, and I feel like we should do an episode about it at some point. Yeah, sure. Um, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's mainly to do with like, you know, the whole God complex and, you know, achieving yeah, power. Yeah, it's something kind of it's something like that. Um, but it's interesting because they don't establish the, the villain, essentially. Uh, he just becomes evil sort of out of nowhere. You know what I mean? It's uh, but, right. uh, you know, it's fun. So I really like mm-hmm. and I want to talk about the theaters. By the way, everyone, our episode today is about Hunger, Stephen Queen's film, but I want to talk about the theaters real fast because there's really nothing new coming out, and this is in theaters. They have a bunch of classics coming out. Friday the 13th I saw came out this weekend at AMC. I'll probably go see that because I haven't seen it yet, Um, and I'm really enjoying the fact that all these older movies are coming out. However, we got some news that I don't think you've heard yet over the last few days, Nick. You ready for this Hmm. news? It's going to hurt you. Yeah, go for it. It's going to hurt you. It's going to be a a gut punch. (laughs) Uh, 007 has now moved to April of 2021. And Dune has now Mm. moved to August 1st, 2021. No. Yeah. (laughs) This has prompted. This has prompted the Regal Cinemas to close. They're closing this Thursday. So Really? All of them? Yeah, all of Regal. Now, Wow. AMC is probably still going to be open, maybe some smaller theater chains, but essentially we're not getting any new big movies. We might get a few awards contesting films, you know, all the, those types of movies that want to try to compete for the barely open and non-competitive Academy Awards season <laughs> this year. <laughs> um, but other than that, we're going to get like classics and indie films and foreign films that we've never, you know, never usually get as broad as distribution as they're going to get now. Um this is largely to do with something that we talked about in our last episode with Tenet. Tenet is still not done well, uh, technically speaking, at least according to the theaters, regal theaters. And so that's why they're closing. They have 007 is not on the horizon to try to save them anymore, which means the studio must think that um, it's COVID and it's nothing to do with individually Tenet as a movie, why it's doing yeah. what it's doing. Uh, people for whatever reason, just don't want to go with the theaters and the numbers they used to. And no one wants to be the one to try it after Tenet. So, and now no big movies are going to release with Regal closed. So, you know, I think Wonder Woman still might be slated for the very end of December. Um, but a lot of movies are keep, keep getting pushed. So it's very what's, interesting. Um, what's Tenet's uh, box office now? Do you know? I think it just hit like 400 mil altogether really? yeah so it, it gained what like 20 million the last time we a week ago <laughs> a little over uh, a week it looks ago. like it's at 307 oh 300 yeah okay well then i was wrong that's not good no um well but i gotta say i was reading a really snide article today uh <laughs> from a writer at variety a uh, critic Sure. And l- listen to some of this. Are you, are you ready for this? Oh, mm-hmm. here, let me scroll down to this. All right. <clears throat> All of which is to say 
that when I finally caught up with Tenet just a week ago, venturing out to see my first movie in six months at a multiplex in Hoboken, New Jersey, I found the whole experience more than a little alienating. And not because the COVID part, the social distancing in the theater, the fact that I had to leave the city I live in, New York, to see a movie, got in the way of my enjoyment. No, that was mildly annoying, but what I discovered, to my surprise, is that Tenet, in all its high-tone, kinetic, quasi-obscurity, completed the alienation of the experience. Rather than offering a great escape from the COVID blues, the movie was perfectly in sync with the COVID blues, which is exactly what made it the wrong film for the moment. To be clear, I'm not blaming the commercial disappointment of Tenet in the U.S. marketplace and the fact that it isn't a better movie. Tenet was put out there as the great flickering cinematic candle that would draw 10 million human moths to its flame. And on that level, it perfectly fit the bill. So with, uh, with cultural elites like this, when cinema has cultural elites that are supposed to guide the art form to higher heights, to better places, to nurture it, when you have people like this in those positions, what can you expect? You know what I mean? Yeah. What can you expect? This person essentially just being like just shitting on Tenet and <laughs> sort of rejoicing in the fact that theaters are still closing back down. Um, and it's like, wow, you know, way to throw your art form just literally under the bus. Yeah. But that, that pissed me off. So anyways, everyone get ready to go to AMC and watch a lot of old movies. I think it's going to be fun, but that's all I got. Yeah. I'm going to see a, how to train your dragon. Uh, that just came out. Nice. Again, that should be fun. I, I miss, I missed the theater experience in that cause the sound design was really good. Hmm. Um, any, any film, I actually totally believe in this, but any film, I, I think sound design films with like amazing sound design are more suited for theater than films with like massive visuals. I agree. Um, but yeah, no, uh, yeah, it sucks about, you know, the theaters and such, but no, doom. um, and this yeah, means that, that we can do but <laughs> <laughs> me and Nick have been talking about doing a every 007 film and that would be less than a month from now if it was still coming out. And so I was like, you know what? It's not going to happen, but now it could happen. So we might honestly yeah. have to order that complete set and do it, but we'll see. Yeah, that'd be fun. Um, But anyways, uh, the film that we watched today is Hunger, directed by Steve McQueen, uh, 2008, right? Yep. Um, His first film. Yeah. Great first film. Um, would like to just get this out of the way right away. Um, spoilers, obviously. Uh, we're not going to you know, be taking the people who haven't watched into consideration, so you will be lost if you haven't seen it. Yeah. Cool. Some uh, little backdrop on the film as well. If people are not historically literate about the subject, it's The Troubles, which is uh, when Northern Ireland being a part of the uh, United Kingdom wanted to be instead a part of the Irish nation. Uh, half of them, the Irish Republican movement, which was Catholic and had a militant terrorist group, a paramilitary called the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, um, did all sorts of violence. And there was the, I forget what the other faction was called, but these were the Protestant Irish and they were royalists or loyalists, something like that. So there was a lot of violence in Belfast in you know, the mid late 1900s over this. 
And so this is sort of centering on Bobby Sands, a historical figure of the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, uh, in jail, having been caught and leading a hunger strike. So, yeah, cool. So, uh, what what did you think of the film? I, I love this you, film. Yeah, I know you <laughs> recommended it, but this is actually my first time uh, seeing the whole thing. Okay, nice. Yeah. Uh, I, I assume you saw the dialogue scene beforehand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what everyone shares. Um, uh, which, by the way, is so good. But um, yeah. the main thing that you know, this movie is very like difficult to watch. Um, yeah. There's a lot of like I don't know. It, it's very gross. First off, <laughs> yes. there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of just like you know things well, involving the, excrement and that's one of the themes you know, of the movie is the body essentially you know right the, right the interaction of the human body and essentially the human body as a political tool um right and, and sort of using it like when when this is all you have left how are you going to use it how can you throw down the gauntlet you know um so yeah you have all sorts of piss and shit and blood and scabs and all sorts of like gross things yeah and if i can say it's it's it is really the sound design that sells all that. Um, mm-hmm. Man, just some of the some of the sounds that were in this film were just so uh, it, it makes it. I think that's what makes it really hard to watch, because like, you know, seeing a brown smeared wall is one thing. But like, you know, hearing the sounds of it and like, who, I, I actually want to know who did the uh, <laughs> who did the sound design here. Uh, sound, sound Paul, Paul Davies, Davies. And, and Richard Davy. They have they a slightly different last name, but it's pretty much the same. Paul Davies yeah. seems to have done more stuff. Um, yeah, he did. You were never really here. The Queen, the Proposition, which I hear is really good. Uh, and yeah. Richard Davy seen a lot of these. Uh, did the Queen and the Proposition as well? So he must be a guy that essentially works with Paul Davies. Okay. Yeah. yeah, very good. Also, I want to point out cinematography is great as well. Uh, it's Sean Bobbitt, yes. the great Sean Bobbitt, who has essentially, I think, done all of Steve McQueen's films. And Steve McQueen has some very beautiful films. 12 Years a Slave is probably his most beautiful. Yeah. Um, I think what's really interesting about this film is, yeah, it's focusing on, you know, one of the things we pointed out already is the human use of the human body, essentially, what, what we will due to the human body and for what reasons um, there's a political undertone to the movie, but not in a modern way, just sort of showing this political struggle struggle and how humans sort of interpret their situation politically and act politically and use their bodies politically. But what I really like about this film is its unique structure as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't open with Michael Fassbender. You open with a prison guard who I don't know who he was played by. Um, I'll try to find that. But you essentially get to know his experience, uh, Stuart Graham. You get to know his experience of being sort of one of these loyalists and in Belfast and, you know, all the horrors he has to go through and what his life is like. You know, that opening sequence of him getting ready and listening to the news and checking for a bombarder's car and looking down both ways of the street before pulling out, you know. Um, yeah. is really insightful. But I also really like... Not the, the fact that we start with a character that's not our main character, but that essentially the first half of the film, the first 30 minutes of the film, there's a, it's like a three-parter film, are silent. There's little 
moments of dialogue. Yeah. Stuart Graham has a joke um, with some other prison guards. Michael Fassbender talks with a new prisoner. Um, that's like really it other than Margaret Thatcher's voiceovers. And then you get the big, you know, 30 minute conversation, which is mostly done in one take. And then after that, you go to the sort of the death scene, the, the hunger strike itself. And I really like this unique structure because it's not at a whole normally, it's not conventional and yet it works. It works really well. It's a very, uh, slow rhythm to the, the entire film, but yet I still think it's gripping. And there's a lot of um, really interesting techniques that they use. Like I, I like how when the dialogue starts in that 20, 30 minute scene, uh, it's initially just small talk. And I think that's great because you almost can't even understand them initially. And I've noticed this, I've watched this film like four or five times now. And I've always yeah. noticed that I can't understand what they're initially saying. But it doesn't matter because it's small talk. And then you do get to know what they're saying. But then they naturally actually move to the point of why they're there in the first place. So, yeah, it, there's this was, at the beginning, it was more like them feeling each other out, you know, where. Yeah. And you're feeling them out, too, because this is the first time you're really hearing yeah. them talk at all and getting the point of what this is. And I really like that the structure of this is so unique and it's the entire thing is so carefully crafted towards the audience experience of it, but not in a conventional way. You know, right after the conversation, you get that long shot where they're just pushing the the piss and the chemicals, cleaning the floor down towards the camera. It's like, what, a minute or two yeah. minute shot? You know, and it gives you a moment. Once again, you want to think on that 30 minutes that you just witnessed and you want to, you know, it, get, it has the entire experience of feeling the film uh, crafted into it in a way that you just don't see conventionally. So Yeah. One, one thing that I wanted to kind of talk about was that this, I feel like this film is a, is a masterclass almost in conditioning where um, I feel like a lot of this film has to do with um, at least on the kind of like a structural side has to do with um, conditioning the audience to be starved for a certain thing. Hmm. Right. Um, like I feel like, because uh, when I, when I saw that shot by itself, uh, my immediate reaction was like, oh, I want to go try to do and do that, you know, and like I fucked up horribly. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the problem was when I did it, like, you know, I tried to write an interesting and gripping scene, but the problem is no one is coming to sit down for a one take thing. Yeah. Right. And I think it's, I think it is kind of the silence and the lack of any, um, any sort of, uh, you know, like character connection that you would normally have in a film for the first 40, like I, I actually timed it out for 45 minutes, you know, and then like, I think it's exactly at the 45 minute mark is where um, you have this conversation. Yeah. Right. And it's almost that you're like, so, and, and uh, we got to remember too, that the, the 45 minutes before this are brutal as all hell. Yeah. You know, um, and you also have no kind of like uh, connection to any character. Uh, no one really has any, like you said, um, like important dialogue or, you know, anything like that. So when you finally come into a dialogue scene. You're ready um, to sit there for 30 minutes and listen attentively. Right, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's it's interesting because I, I almost felt like Steve McQueen was um, was also starving the audience. You know, and he does it in multiple ways throughout the film. But like in that um, 
in that move in particular, I think the I think the forty five minutes of silence is, um, or I, I guess the forty five minutes of of just like you know, no dialogue really, no dialogue. Uh, you're you're just ready to sit down by the end of it and you know listen to this extremely well written and well acted just single take. Yeah, you know, for for the next half an hour, and then when they they cut that take finally and they do the close up on Michael Fassbender. Not yeah, only is, is that another, possibly like the single most beautiful. Minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's also arguably one of the single most beautiful shots in the film. Cause they start with the cigarette and they pan up to Michael Fassbender. Um, and the lighting's beautiful, but, uh, the dramatic, uh, tonal shift, you know, of that, of that cut is so much more powerful as well. When he goes into his monologue about the wee fool and, uh, being a young boy, Irish cross country runner, you know, mm-hmm. which is important because that also relates to the body and what the body can sustain and so on and yeah. so forth. Um, well, it's how but, he kind of like won this exchange between him and the priest. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I, it's interesting because that whole conversation is, I don't know, like it's one of the most well-written conversations I've ever seen on screen. Yeah, it's crazy. It's fucking um, crazy. Well, and it's, it it kind of starts with both of them trying to like feel each other out, f- like figure out who the other is. Well, they know right? each other from and, what I'm getting from the conversation, but you're right. They are feeling each other out. For sure. Well, they sort of know each other. They don't know a lot about each other. I, I, I kind of got the inclination that maybe he knew of him or like he. That's true. I think I think he said at some point that he had like listened to one of his sermons or saw him somewhere at yeah. some point. Um, but this is the first time they're like talking face to face. Yeah, that makes you sense. Know? That's that's sort of um, what I mean. I, I sort of meant that he knows that this guy, this priest is an Irish Republican priest. Right, right. Um. But having him, uh, having him come here, he was, you know, at, at the very beginning, he's trying kind of trying to feel him out. He's throwing a couple, you know, um, metaphorical jabs, you know, yeah. which, uh, where, which the priest kind of takes in stride. Um, and it's not really until they t- start talking about the priest's personal life and his kind of jealousy for his brother that, uh, you know, the priest finally kind of shows his true c- colors, which I think is what actually gets, um, uh, Michael Fassbender, uh, I think Bobby Sands, right? Yeah. Um, he finally gets Bobby's respect, you know, or mm-hmm. at least trust um, in a sense. And he, he kind of just uses him as this bouncing board. And he admits yeah, I mean, that he kind of like um, he brought he brought him here because he was weak and didn't know if he could go through with it. And he needed someone to like argue against. He needed someone to tell him no so he could do it. <laughs> exactly. You know? um, exactly. He needs someone to clear his thoughts, you know, to sort of beat right. it out on and he says it in the conversation you know so i've made it cleared for you you know the priest says to bobby sands he's like yeah, yeah. um i want to point out another thing about this scene and, and frankly the entire movie as well that initial shot we have to remember about steve mcqueen is he was an artist before he was a filmmaker before he made film as oh, medium cool. and yeah. in particular what he did was video installations so that's arguably still cinema but mm-hmm. What I like about the shots, and when I think about the shots, when I think about that opening, that close to the opening shot in the opening sequence of the prison guard when he's smoking a cigarette, when I think about the prison guard cleaning the urine, or when I think about these guys sitting and talking uh, in that wide um, for, you know, 20 some minutes in that one shot, 
is they are sort of paintings, frankly. I, I know that may sound cliche, but I don't think I found it a film that more exemplifies like a frame as a painting <laughs> um, yeah. than this, than Steve McQueen and Sean Bobbitt, but this particular film, like I could see these, I, each of these shots I could imagine if they were done as like really realistic oil paintings, I could see them, mm-hmm. you know, um, it has that feel to it. It has that feel. That's why you can sit there and you can watch that guy smoke a cigarette for like 15, 20 seconds, 30 seconds even. And it's not a, not a big deal. It doesn't feel boring to you. Um, and a lot of other movies, you know, they might not do that right. And it just fills off with the. Yeah. The well, I think that also had to do with the, the fact that, you know, you didn't hear anyone talk for the first 45 minutes of the film. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's. Well, even at it, the end with like the shot with the feather going down as he's laying in the bed. I mean, it's just every single one of these shots, you know, I think the even like the radial shit, like how they created these designs with their shit on the walls, with their protests. And it's mm-hmm. just, you know, I could see that as a painting with the water hitting it, uh, the water hose. It's just, uh, it's pretty, it's really unique. I really like how they did it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, I think another interesting part of this film is that they, uh, he, he seemed to have this very, he want, I, I felt like he wanted to create this stark contrast between, you know, the soldier and the, the soldier and the priest, right? Um, which I, I would argue is like that one shot with the dialogue scene is kind of like personified throughout the rest of the film too, where, you know, you have these people that are talking about it, these outsiders, right. That kind of have their own, um, opinions and stances on thing, things, but they don't, um, act, they don't bring that, you know, they're not in the piss and the shit. They're not you need the- getting... You need the cultural political revolutionary to give life a pulse. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. That's what and, you're saying. And, <laughs> yeah. No. Well, and like the, there's that whole long shot with the guy like pushing the uh, shit water down the hallway. Mm-hmm. Right. And then at the very end of it, um, I think it was, you get like a radio broadcast from Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. Right. And she's basically, it's hard to take what she's saying seriously when you're, watching the shit water yeah you know and um i thought that was a very kind of like like elegant way to um re-encapsulate what they just talked about um i don't know i don't know i think it's uh, yeah it's nice i've also noticed that uh steve mcqueen's films do um i mean widows his latest film mm-hmm. taught me more about using contrast in films than any other movie I've seen. So I agree with you that contrast is definitely a tool that he makes use of more so than I see in most other people's films. And yeah, in, especially in genuinely uh, creative ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Margaret Thatcher, you know, that's an interesting, I believe those are old radio broadcasts from what I understand mm-hmm. that are used in their intercut in there. And you're right. Initially, yeah. initially you're almost a little lenient. Uh, you're not necessarily, hundred percent IRA's side. I think towards the end, the film is slanted towards Bobby Sands. And I would say probably correctly in the IRA side. Uh, but initially yeah. you're sort of experiencing this sort of blue collars, uh, guy's life as he's preparing to go to work as a prison guard and all the sort of shit he has to go through and his bloody knuckles and the pain. And the yeah, obvious at first you anxiety. kind of like feel sympathy for him. Yeah. You know? Uh, and Margaret Thatcher's points sort of make sense, you know, uh, you know, there was no such thing as political violence, political murder, 
you know, blah, blah, blah. There is only criminal murder, criminal violence, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, but as it goes on, you definitely, I think, due to the filmmaking, but also Michael Fassbender's performance and this scene in particular with the priest, you're on his side. Uh, yeah. So when Margaret Thatcher starts talking about how they're about to do another hunger strike and how they're evil men that want to divide people, you know, it just doesn't uh, doesn't ring true anymore, uh, especially right. because it's a hunger strike and it's not hurting anyone. And it's just right. Uh, right. Well, and yeah. when when you when she talks about how they're like using pity as a weapon to stoke the fires of uh uh what like separation and evil or whatever she said but yeah. uh um, division division yeah um but yeah no when when you see exactly what you're seeing on screen you know and seeing seeing what they have to endure and go through um you know the way the way she describes it they're just kind of like uh sitting pretty trying to get uh pity from people yeah you know and like nobody could endure what they were trying to do if they didn't if they didn't believe in what they were doing yeah you know absolutely Um, but yeah the uh the fade in montage of the all the food being brought to him as well while he's like slowly getting scrappier and scrappier uh yeah degenerating yeah um this film's very like encapsulated um it feels very short and i think that uh the long takes have to do with that yeah it is only an hour and a half as well right but when when a third of your movie is one scene and then you're right there's a bunch of long takes as well you know yeah it can feel it does feel like about it like an hour maybe yeah and it feels like it, it does feel like a drawn out short film but it doesn't actually feel like there's any uh I mean, I could say, I could say, I could see maybe an argument saying that there's a little bit of wasted space in here, but to to kind of try to differentiate, you know, at what point does it become diff- wasted space is ridiculous, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I I think it did a really good job at uh, keeping the pace, and uh, there were only a couple times. Like I think the uh, the shitwater hallway was a little long, in my opinion, and but that's what I mean is like by how, how much I, I have no idea. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. I mean, this is definitely a film I think of in my mind when I think, you know, when people talk about slow movies, you know, this is a film I think about in yeah. my mind, like how to do that right. You know, in terms of the rhythm. Um, right. Because it is an agonizing thing to watch a movie that is slow. That's not doing it right. You know, a movie that pops yeah. in my mind is like uh, lost city of Z or something. It can be very agonizing to have to sit there. And uh, not enjoy what you're watching. And yet it's sort of excruciatingly slow. And a lot of slow movies are also fairly artsy like this one. And so when you're not enjoying it and it's not doing it well, and it's also artsy, it's like, man, how long am I going to have to like Lost City of Z (laughs) watch these guys like look at trees in the forest for like fucking another 10 minutes here, you know? So yeah, it can be an excruciating thing, but I think this is definitely one of the better examples of, handling that rhythm yeah and i think um i think uh kind of contrast and structure and being very aware of the audience experience is super crucial to any slow film 
you know, like when when your when your cuts are, you know, like 1.7 seconds on average, you don't really have to worry about that as much. Yeah. You know, but when you're banking on a 30 minute shot, you have to be very aware of like where your audience is at the moment where you introduce that to them. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that's something I've learned from experience, because, you know, like I said, I tried like a seven minute uh, dialogue scene um, in one of my shorts and it just totally didn't work out. Um, Like I could I could even even when I was watching it, I was just like, shit, I wish I just, you know, <laughs> I wish I just filmed more stuff Um, <laughs> because got some there, coverage. Yeah, because like I was like, all right, well, I cast really good actors here, you know we wrote a really kind of like engaging scene where we get to see a, like a lot of different complex things come together. Right. There's, there's a lot of activity uh, going on uh, between the lines. And I was like, okay, we got this. Um, but then, you know, I was sitting in the editing room and I'm like, this is like, nobody's ready for this by the time it comes, you know, cause this is like a minute and a half into the film. Oh, okay. You know? And I'm just like, yeah, no, it, 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 totally didn't work and um i think that's what made me really realize uh what i did wrong when i watched hunger you know what um how did you attempt to fix it did did you just zoom in on the shots and crop them or did you reshoot that or um well i ended up cutting a lot of it and then um kind of like cutting in audio bits uh of different parts of that scene in different areas in the film as it like uh became important um so it was kind of like a creative solution to it. I think it sort of worked. Uh, you know, obviously it would have been better if I just shot the scene normally. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it was. It's one of those things that uh, you know, you you do, you learn, you fail. You know, yeah. Well, that's part of it. You see something that you really like, and you're like, I really want to do that. Right. And sometimes it blows up in your face, and sometimes it's great. But even if it's great, you're like, maybe you're not even doing it for the right reasons. Like I remember. I haven't made a future film, but I remember one of my first shorts I made at film school, I was just mm-hmm. ripping off uh, Spike Lee's uh, 25th hour. <laughs> like, <and> I felt, <laughs> and it was good and people really liked it, but it was, um, I was just like, okay, that's great. But essentially what I did was make a scene out of the 25th hour. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so. Um, but I think it's good to try, uh, I think when you're, when you're first starting out, it's really good to try things that, uh, especially when you're at film school, like, I hate when people play it safe at film school and do things that they know they're good at. Like yeah. every time I made a film and like while we were in film school, it was me trying to do something absurd that I knew probably would never work. And honestly, yeah. uh, that's what Reaper was for me too, was a, a kind of um, a exercise to see what I could, uh, to see what rules I could break. You know, um, obviously cool. I, I didn't try to like, uh, you know, ruin the movie for that sake. I'm still trying to make a good film, but you know, well, I have uh, listened to a lot of Steve McQueen interviews over the years and he talks about his film school experience and maybe I'll actually be able to find this clip and throw it in at the end for you guys. But he's, he went to NYU. He got accepted into NYU. Um, he already had some great degree for some art school. So as like a graduate program, he got into NYU and he left after three months because they wouldn't let him experiment from what he says. This is his story. And he said he mm-hmm. really wanted to throw the camera in the air, like literally throw the camera in the air and they wouldn't let him. <laughs> and so he quit. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you're on the right track. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
But also, I want to. I have a couple more things I want to talk about. But I want to yeah, bring yeah. it back to what you were saying about this, which we were both saying. Really, um, this is sort of the recurring thing that we're talking about. Was sort of the the beauty of the particular craftsmanship in this film is he has such a good finger on the pulse relating to the audience in the making of this film, and that's what makes it works. Essentially, he understands mm-hmm. the ride he's giving the audience, the experience he's giving the audience, like really really well and that's what allows him to get away with as we've talked about the 30 minute dialogue scene the incredibly quiet winners you know the lack of character development for the first over third of the movie mm-hmm. you know like half um and i think yeah i think uh watching this film gives you an idea that it, it it's interesting right because normally what you're taught rather than thinking in that way you're taught a pre-existing structure which has been proven to work right uh right apparently which i i guess that's true but as opposed to using any sort of pre-existing structure because he didn't very obviously he mm-hmm. just thought about what a structure is made for in the in the first place which is the telling of the story to an audience and how it's going to flow you know um yeah and figured it out that way as opposed to, and that's a more helpful way because that's in essence what your structure is doing in the first place. So it's interesting. Maybe people should be thinking about it from that perspective as opposed to really trying to figure out how they can get whatever story they want to tell to fit and work with five-act structure or something. Maybe it would be better just to think about how you could tell your story the way it should be told. Uh, You're sort of adding on this extra level of difficulty that in essence might not even be getting at what you're trying to get at. So I yeah, think that's actually, interesting. So that's actually something that I really love about um, Japanese cinema is uh, they, they kind of approach structure in the same way that Steve McQueen does, you know, where um, they see it as something that's uh, something that you design for the audience. And I, I think we've talked about this before, but um Every every country has kind of like their their idea of what um, um, of what constitutes a story, you know, um, culture. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, but that's the thing is like in in the West, you know, you have these uh, rigid uh, story structures and stuff, and that's why hunger might seem off to a lot of people who watch it. Yeah, um, which you know you just kind of got to kind of broaden your perspective. And honestly, whenever you watch any master, like their structure is not going to be, um, you know, cut and dry what you learn in film school or language arts class at school, you know, but, um, I think Steve McQueen in particular does a really good job at, um, playing with it and having it originate from like a very unique place. And that's the Um, thing. You get a lot of complaints from, People, I've met a bunch of people who are like, I wanted to be a screenwriter. And then I realized there's no creativity in that. And then essentially what they complain about is they went to a class and the person was telling them about mythic structure and five-act structure and eight-act structure and three-act structure and so on. And it's like, this is essentially what you're doing. You're taking this and then you're sort of slapping your idea into it and making sure it works. Um, but that's sort of their own fault for not really <laughs> thinking about the medium more and sort of relying on this person. Because yeah. what Steve McQueen has done here and what so many great filmmakers have done, whether it's Nolan or Scorsese or somebody else, uh, is they they take it upon themselves as a part of the creativity. They're creating something, you know, and right. they're not just, you know, they're not, you know, a chef doesn't 
necessarily use a pre-made um, recipe. He makes his own. You know what I mean? Right. So, right. but when you're it, learning to be a chef, sometimes you know they'll give you pre-made recipes. Yeah, and you should um, you should know about three act structure. But I'm just saying, like the idea that if you're sitting down to write a movie, make a movie, and you're changing the essence of your movie uh, because it's not, uh, you know, uh, flowing arbitrarily with like three act structure or something. I think that's fucked up. And I feel like you should think about it structure in a more creative way, like Steve McQueen is doing here, as opposed to yeah. as a law that you can't break. And this is why everything's not working. So, well, I think, I think when in general, what I've seen is that people, uh, people, uh, actually, you know, I want to start this by saying, I think Steve McQueen's a very brave filmmaker. And I don't mean that by saying like, Oh, he covers like very brave subjects, which I mean, I mean, he does, but, um, I mean, like he's very, um, He's very confident and it makes a lot of he I, I rarely see him make a decision out of fear. You know? Yeah. I've seen him make decisions that don't work, you know, but um I don't think I've ever seen him um shy away from something that he could do because he was afraid that it wouldn't work. You know, which is very um you know, it, it's something that's very uh very admirable. Mm-hmm. You know. Um but I think to tie this into the whole like film school talk um, and kind of this reliance on three act structure that you see out, out of a lot of at least beginning screenwriters, but honestly a lot of uh, further along ones as well. Um, but you, I, I think the reason that people rely on these things too heavily is because of fear, right? Because of yeah. fear that they don't really know what they're talking about and they don't know what they're making a film about or what they're writing a story about. Um, and honestly, a lot of people who go to uh, like film school for screenwriting um, suffer the same problems, right? Because like I, I personally, like the reason that I went to film school was to get my hands on that equipment and, you know, test shit out <laughs> yeah, um, and experiment and to fail literally as much as I possibly could in an environment that it didn't matter that I was failing in, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I think a lot of people, when they go to film school, they're going there to, um, you know, as their like golden ticket success because they don't see how to get there without it. Right. And I feel like when you have that kind of mentality, when you go to film school, um, you're going to fail as a screenwriter or a filmmaker because you're going to have, you're going in with the, with the mentality of fear, right. With the mentality that something else is going to take care of it for you. Mm -hmm. Right when your mentality should be how much of this, like how much of this can I control and how much of it can I not control? And like, what areas of myself do I have to grow in order to uh, become a better filmmaker, a better screenwriter, whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think, I think that's why when you go to film school, you see a lot of those people that just don't want um, uh, that just, don't want to break out of that box, you know, and, and like they say that it's stunting their creativity, but I really feel like, you know, they stunted their own creativity by believing that that box was real. Yeah. Um, it's it's sad as well that people think film school will give them a career. I mean, they should go for it to the reasons that you, you spoke for yourself, which is just as a way of learning, you know, just a way of learning and self-development. You know, I haven't heard of anyone uh, in recent years, I started a career because of film school. So. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, no, really. I mean, you got to throw I, the I, I camera get, get, in the air. <laughs> you got <laughs> to throw the do. camera in the air. You got to you got to make your seven motto. minute dialogue scene that's just exactly you know complete crap. <laughs> yeah. Um, another thing I wanted to we'll just bring it back to hunger now, but one thing I wanted to bring attention to about this film as well that we haven't really talked about yet is the physicality of it. Hmm. Um, we've essentially talked about how it is essentially a silent film with, you know, meaning no dialogue for the half of it and pretty much the last half, the last 20, 25 minutes as well. And Mm. it's all physical. So you're getting violence done against one another, beatings. You're getting people hiding things in their uh, anus. You're getting people smearing shit on the walls. You're you're seeing people mush their food together to create these little pathways for urine under the door. You know, and you're seeing Michael Fesbender lose weight. You know, he did the De Niro thing. Um, I, I looked up some years ago, he fasted for some ridiculous amount of time to get to where he's at. Um, you're seeing Michael Fassbender's character, Bobby Sands at the end when he's dying, you're seeing Fassbender have incredible control over his body in, in portraying the sort of de- the, uh, degeneration of it, uh, certain muscles here, there, a cough, a spasm. Um, and I think that's great. I think that's amazing. It's a really great film for all that. Yeah. No, that's so. <laughs> that was impressive. I was I was actually thinking about like what they would have had to do to schedule that out. And I'm like, would they like schedule him first and do all of his scenes, then film everybody else's scenes while Michael Fassbender was fasting? <laughs> and then uh Yeah, they might know. have done the guard stuff, uh, you know, in that. Yeah, the guard stuff and the other two guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um I was just thinking about that schedule and how like tight that must have been. For Once again, Michael, it's, it's, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's that uh, simple uh, into uh, intuition about this film, you know, similar to what we've been saying about how Steve has got his finger on the pulse relating to the structure of this movie, even though it's completely out there, you know, it's not at all mainstream. Uh, just seeing how you can tell the story physically you know, with the blocking and with the acting, it's a, uh, it's very inspiring yeah. to see how these characters portray their emotions very vividly. Uh, and you feel exactly what you need to feel, uh, with no dialogue practically. Um, in the juxtaposition of that, you get the guard with all his worriedness, with his cleanliness, right. His brushing the crumbs off of his lap and his, yeah. um, <laughs> precise getting ready schedule and checking under the car. And then, washing in his hand after he's beaten someone and busted his knuckles and then having a smoke, you get to know him in a better way than what the vast majority of movies would be doing in a similar situation. If they were making this, you know, of yeah, someone else this is, this, they would have some sort of dialogue scene and they, you would connect him to some people and show how he's like a great dad or a great husband. And it would be done in dialogue and maybe one or two character interactions, but instead it's done through the in the first 15 minutes. Right. That's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's done instead through these, um, these physical feats. It's a very physical form of acting. And I, I really love it. I, I really like seeing as much of the story being told through the physical movement, essentially the blocking really of the character mm-hmm. as much as possible. It's always something I've enjoyed. Uh, and this movie is like a great example of that. 
Yeah. Yeah. Using physicality to, um, I think that's something that, uh, Fincher also does really well. Yeah. Um, just remember guys, exposition can be fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Exposition doesn't Uh, require dialogue even, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Think about that for a moment. Most people, as soon as they think about exposition, they're like, Oh, Indiana Jones scene where they're talking about, you know, (laughs) going and that might actually be a good scene, but nonetheless, it's like, it doesn't need to be a conversation between four people, each interjecting with new information. Yeah. I mean, it can there's actually always be about a guy to, checking like, under his car for a bomb, you know? Right. Right. There's always ways to cheat it. Um, but I actually consider this to be a more like natural or um, basic form of exposition, but mm-hmm. just nobody does it because they're told that they should be cheating it, you know? Yeah. And there's, there's a big problem with cheating exposition in, in that uh, it can, it can sound forced. Right. And you never want um, you never want to unintentionally break that fourth wall by having the audience realize that this character is only saying this line for you. Oh, yeah. Character that doesn't exist in that world. You know, like that, that, that as an audience member will completely remove you from uh, whatever experience you're having. Also, and I'll add to your point here. It's uh, insulting to some degree to the audience because you're cheating it because to some degree you're thinking that they're not going to be able to get it. Otherwise you're sort of undervaluing their intelligence. So. Sure. Um, but also, um, yeah, no, like I, th- I think there are good ways to cheat it and any good way to cheat it, you know, feels natural. Right. Um, one of the best ways is to have a character that um, is uninformed about the information that, and requires to be informed about the information that you want to deliver to the audience. Right. Yeah. So, um, I mean, like, uh, I know what's a good example of this. Um, the matrix. Yeah, actually perfect example, (laughs) right? Neo, right. Where, where they have, they have every intention. They have every reason in the world to give him all this information which he knows none of. So it feels completely natural um, for us to watch that scene and be given this exposition while, you know, Neo is also given that exposition, you know? Um, And that that's perfectly fine and it flows and it, you know, fits right into that story. But, you know, when you, when you watch some other, they built up to it. They did fantastic world building while also doing it. Yeah, know? exactly. But yeah, when you watch some of these like cheaper horror movies or rom-coms or something and they, anytime you hear a sentence, I know you know this, but um, yeah, you're, you're being force fed exposition. Or the, um, the voiceover at the beginning of the romantic comedy going over her life and then, right, Oh right. no, I found my fiance in bed with somebody else. You know, this sort of thing as she's narrating. So. Yeah. Which like, it's so much better filmmaking if you can just get in there and tell people or show people what this person's life is like, you know, she doesn't have to say that she has OCD and she's a neat freak, right? You can just see her, you know, adjusting something to be right on. uh, Like I actually, I actually did this in Reaper where like there's a character that has OCD in it. um, And we never, ever, ever explicitly say that he does. Right. You know, um, literally the only the it's only through specific actions like, you know, you see him lock his door three times every time he's every time he comes home. Sure. You know, um, that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, no, ha- having these uh, 
having kind of like more inferred exposition, I think is far greater. I don't know. Maybe it's weird because it is insulting to the audience to feel like they can't get that. But then again, you look at what a lot of critics say, you know, (laughs) no, yeah, I get you. And I don't mean to say that I was, I was thinking that you were initially talking about cheating in this completely negative manner. And so what I think about when I say you're, you're, you know, treating the audience as they're unintelligent or they're stupid or they're, you're not trusting them is when you don't essentially, you don't want to do uh, exposition, but you have to, that's what I think of. I think that's a really bad mind frame to be in as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, you mm. should want to um, use exposition and you should want yeah. one, like I'm just saying, like you should want to think creatively about structure, just like Steve McQueen. It should never be, how am I going to get this to work? Like this is, a serious like this is a um a problem i don't want to deal with sort of mindset that i'm really getting at here and so i think the exposition that comes out of that sort of mindset of oh i you know i don't want to do this um it just the doesn't whole, work and it yeah yeah the whole difference between having the mindset of like a movie that needs to be fixed rather than a set of challenges that needs to be overcome Yeah. And it's also like if I was making a movie, like look at Steve McQueen. Let's just pretend we're Steve McQueen for a moment and we'll fast forward through his mind. All right. Uh, Steve McQueen gets to build, he gets to world build this historical period of time with these really interesting historical figures. And he goes, Oh, I'm, I'm going to portray this guy's sort of life. He's going to be looking under his car for a bomb. Uh, We're only going to really have Margaret Thatcher giving us any sort of clue. People might know some history coming into it. Um, I'm going to show them sneaking things in and out in the sort of um, uh, guests they get at the prison and he brings a radio in and I'm going to show how there are Catholics and they're, they're, they're religious, but at the same time they use their uh, religious um, rights as human beings to talk among each other and plan as opposed to listen to the priest, you know, and that's, that's an interesting way to, um, to um, approach uh, exposition as opposed to, Oh man, I really don't want to do this. How can I get this all done in like, uh, one minute or less, you know, and like, Oh, I just need to get it out of the way, you know? So that's, that's what I'm really trying to, um, uh, give an example as an approach here. Uh, And this is what I mean about treating your audience unintelligently where it's like, he, he's not even telling us the exposition, Steve McQueen. He's literally just showing us and you get what you get. And if it goes past you, it goes past you. Uh, and yet it's far more powerful and far more creative uh, than people that are doing these sort of voiceover monologues intro to the rom-com. Here's my life for the last five years and how the love of my life just betrayed me and I got fired from my job. And now this quirky guy across the hallway, you know, is going to become my new love, but I don't know that yet. You know, <laughs> so. Yeah. No, it's a, it's, I don't know. Like, I, I guess what I usually call that kind of film is a film that holds your hand, you know? Um, whereas hunger is very much a film that does not hold your hand. Right. Well, I mean, it's the repeating what we said essentially, right? Yeah. Steve McQueen is approaching each of these aspects of filmmaking from a creative original standpoint. Whereas that holding your hand film is the film that is thinking about how am I going to get my exposition done? It's a problem that I have to approach. It's not some sort of creative thing that I can use for my storytelling. How am I going to get the structure done? Am I using three act or five act? Am I going to do a play on mythic structure? You know, (laughs) it's that same, it's that, you know, it's the guy that has, 
um, which is not a horrible thing. You can have books related to screenwriting and filmmaking. Obviously, I have some, but it's the guy that like religiously read those and wrote all his screenplays based off of those, as opposed to like a right. guy like Steve McQueen, who was an artist for years, just watched movies religiously, even dropped out of film school just because they wouldn't let him experiment. He just has a raw passion and a uh, humbleness before the art form to try things, you know? So that's how I think about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's an interesting... Well, um, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I, I didn't know you dropped out of film school. Um, <laughs> that's... I never trust anyone who like enjoyed their time at film school and, yeah. you know, had a great time, got to like made the best films there or whatever, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. I, I feel like anybody who was, who was frustrated by what they weren't allowed to do, you know, that's, that's someone that's a little more, um, you can tell that they're there to, to do something, right. They're not there to learn how to be a filmmaker. Sure. Um, but, uh, no, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, no, I was constantly being frustrated with, uh, the length problem at our film school. Um, my first, oh, film, yeah, yeah. yeah, my first film there was 12 minutes and they said that was too long. Um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was absurd, but, um, yeah, they wanted films to be between like a minute and a half and three minutes, you know? Yeah. The, the prod ones. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Steve McQueen's story, as well as uh, some people I've known in real life and some other filmmakers that I've read of and listened to interviews, they have uh, quelled uh, some regret that I had because I did get a scholarship to go to like a better film school with like a Sundance program as well, you know? Mm. And I always like, I didn't do it ultimately because a lot of the same reasons that we've talked about right now, I'm like, just going to get into a lot of debt and it's probably not going to be much better than the film school I'm going to right now. And I bet the Sundance <laughs> program is sort of like way overrated now and it may not be as good as it was. Um, and so I, I'm perfectly happy with not having finished uh, my filmmaking degree and not having taken advantage of that and hearing people like Steve McQueen talk about film school and seeing where they've gotten to. Um, that's uh, an encouraging thing. Uh, I think that's what people should be looking at. You know, how do filmmakers make it in film? Uh, they most definitely almost always didn't do it because of going to film school. There was like a, a period of time where the movie Brad sort of did that. And that was about it. So, yeah, I think there was like a, uh, there's probably a golden time for every film school, you know, when they first open, they get like a couple students coming through that, you know, really want to use their, Maybe not the one that we went to, but, you know, like places like NYU and uh, sure. USC, AFI, maybe. Um, actually, AFI probably still does that. But I well, you know, you hear good things about AFI. I We had a teacher that got accepted to AFI at our film school, and I actually talked to him about my scholarship thing. And after talking to him, it was part of the reason I decided not to even do it because he got into AFI and he decided not to do it. Yeah. And uh I think that was the right decision for him. And that gave me confidence in my decision, <laughs> you know, of <laughs> sort of bailing on film school. And essentially my last year at film school, I took two, two semesters. And what I did is I just loaded up on classes with teachers I really liked. And then that was it. I was like, okay, I'm done with this now. So. Yeah. And I mainly used it for equipment and meeting people like Quinn. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, but anyways, I feel like we are getting towards the end here. This is sort of like, as we just said earlier, um, it feels really short, you know, even though it sort of has this slow rhythm to it, uh, the shots are really long. You have that really long dialogue scene. So there's not, we've sort of covered a lot of what there is to cover, except for the main thing. Uh, Nick, do you want to take a shot at the insight? Um, do you want know. me to try to fumble yeah, it? Ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've seen it more times than I have. <laughs> All right, I'm going to fumble it here, but sure, go I ahead. sort of mentioned it. Uh, I don't have a succinct way of putting it. But what I think is this film is similar to Eastern Promises, uh, David Cronenberg's film with Viggo Mortensen. If you've ever seen that, we'll definitely have to do an episode on that. But um, in the sense that part of what it's about is the human body. And then the secondary aspect is um, man within... Uh, political systems, I guess you could put it that way. Uh, because mm-hmm. not only do you have dealing with a city or a nation of people, frankly, Northern Irish, uh, people that are in an unfortunate historical period where there's significant political strife and they have to pick a side and they have to pick a side based on their identities. But you're also dealing with soldiers of said political strife that are paramilitary using terroristic tactics that also get um, thrown into jail, which is an institution of the state politically, um, and they are doing protests for their political goals. And there's also a plot point in this film about how they're sort of in the way of the broader Irish Republican movement, the movement's sort of paralyzed because a lot of them are in jail and this hunger strike is part of their way of, uh, not only sort of eliminating themselves, uh, so that the movement can go forward, but also possibly using their elimination of themselves as a way of boosting the movement forward. So what you're seeing is the human body or humanity or humans being sort of trapped Mm -hmm. within political systems uh, made visually apparent with the IRA members here, like Bobby Sanders, Bobby Sands in prison. Uh, And when they have nothing else, uh, what they're able to use, which is their body. So it's, it's the prison guards using their fists. It's beating them with sticks. It's ex- expecting them and humiliating them. It's them refusing to eat. It's them smearing their shit and making, um, pouring their piss into the hallway and refusing to wear clothes. By the way, that's something we didn't mention. They're naked practically the entire movie. You see a lot of ass and dick. Um, but yeah, I mean, so yeah. if I, that's a really long way of putting it, but it's essentially, um, and you know, you get it also with, uh, Bobby Sands character. He's, uh, he's made apparent to be not only a cross country runner. So he has a lot of energy. His body is more enduring in the sort of trauma he can put it through. And is also subjected to by his political enemies, but also you get that story of, and it's important to consider this one, considering the insight of the foal, which comes at, you have that like 17 minutes or so of the one shot and then you get a cut to. Uh, or is it 27 minutes? But anyways, you get a cut to his his close-up. And he tells the story of being a young kid uh, when Nor- the Northern Irish boys were brought down to the uh, South Irish to do a cross-country competition. And his group of Northern Irish and some Southern Irish uh, kids come across a fool in the river that's all busted up. It's got broken bones. It's bleeding. And as a priest finds them, uh, they're debating what to do. And as a priest finds them, he decides to take action and drown the uh, the little fool, um, baby deer. 
and uh, about how he knew he made the right decision and he did right by that deer and he gained the respect of those other men. Um, so it's important to keep that in mind in terms of him being a man of principle, politically, a man of principle. He's, as he refers to himself, a cultural political revolutionary, and that gives life a pulse and he's got his beliefs. And as he says, in all its simplicity, that is the most powerful thing. Uh, and what he's willing to subject his body to as a cross country runner for those political goals. And so it's sort of an examination of that. Once again, we might be able to find a statement by Stephen Queen, but I feel like he's leaning towards more of a, not a question, but more of a theme in this film. That's how I would put it, of sort of looking at um, human beings in the relation to political systems, how they're trapped by them, how they create them, how they interact with them, and what they put their bodies through in relation to those those systems and their goals yeah. and their beliefs. Um, I think to build on that too, there, there's kind of an element of um of action versus talk um in this film and um kind of i i would say conviction yeah um being the differentiator between those two things and then um i think a something that i was gathering more towards the end was this uh idea of purity um kind of purity and conviction. I, I don't, I don't know exactly how I would phrase it yet, but um, I, I think that's why he chose to end it with him as a child, you know? Yeah. Um, that is a beautiful sequence of shots as well. In the very end one where he's looking back at the light versus going into the dark forest. Yeah. And um, yeah, when, when he's, I don't know. I, I, I think if this film had something to do with uh, purity, I think it, it's an interesting way to look at it because this film is so uh, disgusting in most places. Um, but I mean, that's that's how you would do it, right? For uh, juxtaposition's sake. Yeah, that's an interesting um, idea uh, about purity because you even think of when the hunger strike starts off and of course he's leading it because yeah. he's a leader. Uh, he goes first. You have that beautiful shot, possibly the second most beautiful in the film, other than the close-up on Fazbender himself. And by the way, I love the cigarettes in this movie. The smoke is great. Um, <laughs> but you have that beautiful shot of him, you know, maybe a couple weeks in to his hunger strike. And the feather, right? The feather comes in a frame, and the feathers seems heavier than him in the frame. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I even heard Steve McQueen talk about this some years ago, watching some videos about this, or maybe it's on the Criterion disc that I have. Yeah. But the, the feather goes down below him, that it feels heavier, heavier than him in that moment, you know? And that, yeah. that sort of relates to what you're saying, I think, with the purity angle. Right. Yeah, it's um, interesting. But it's hard, isn't it? It's sort of hard to distill the message of this movie. And that's what I mean about, I think there is an insight, um, but I definitely think... McQueen in this film is definitely leaning towards more of a, you know, talking about ideas, uh, not a question, but like themes, you know? Yeah. I mean, with, with my whole idea of insight, no matter what you do, there's always an insight because, you know, it literally just depends on how you end the film and what you were trying to say with it. Yeah, I agree. Um, but yeah, no, I think because because you know with the framework of the whole like kind of political revolution 
Um, I think it, I think it is more powerful than like just taking a political stance and you know being a biased filmmaker um, to really focus in on like one man and his own conviction to his cause. Right. Yeah. And regardless of what everyone else says or everyone else thinks, you know, we get a very um, close look at this one man, you know, and mm-hmm. I don't know the, the, the conviction that it takes to, you know, starve yourself to death especially when you're basically just given food on the regular, you know, it's a plate yeah. of and, advertising. And, uh, yeah. They, they did. <laughs> they went out of their way to make that food look really good, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but the conviction to starve yourself to death when in the presence of, you know, doctors and people that would absolutely care for you and, you know, save your life if you asked for it even for a second. Yeah. You know, it it really gives you a more sobering look at uh who these guys were, you know, and what they were able to put themselves to and what it really takes to do that. Um and I I think maybe looking at a may, I think maybe the answer kind of to like what does that take is, is this uh purity you know uh, yeah. purity in their conviction purity of belief yeah um and yeah it's a very moving uh moment there at the end mm-hmm. um and especially that sequence of his body continuing to degrade and him not giving up yeah and bringing it back to him as a child was a nice touch because you know it reminds you of who this guy is and why he does what he does. And I I think, I I think him convincing the priest with an anecdote from his childhood is a very, uh, um, it's it's a very profound moment, right? Because I think that's where he really pushes into that, uh, purity a little bit. And I think the priest sees it there too, you know? Yeah. And it also brings up that physicality as well of the cross country running. Uh, It says it at the end of the film, but he was on hunger strike for 66 days. Can you imagine? Yeah. I don't, I don't think most people would even survive a month. It's insane to live for 66 days without eating. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, and you kind of see how fragile he is and, you know, he has lesions all over his body. And it is very, uh, if you're, if you get queasy easily, this movie is going to be very, uh, yeah. <laughs> very difficult to get through. I mean, it was, um, it, it's, it's honestly something that's hard to watch with, which I think is something that, um, I would say Steve McQueen is a filmmaker that doesn't really think about the enjoyment of his audience at all. You know, <laughs> um, yeah. like he definitely he 100 percent considers their experience and, you know, he has you right where he wants you the whole time. But he's I don't think he really entices you with a good time, you know. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah like. But as 
as with how films should be and stories should be in general, I think having a profound insight is much more important than uh, entertaining your audience. Entertainment is a cheap trick, you know, to lure your audience in to trick them into learning something. But, you know, sure. I think even in that way, this film is very pure as well. Um, where it, it has no intention of tricking you into anything, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah. Anyways, that's, uh, I guess that's well, what I have to say about hunger. hunger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, I think, uh, I think we covered hunger. I think yeah. everyone needs to watch this film. Definitely an experience. Um, it's on criterion. So you can always get the criterion Blu-ray looks fantastic on that. It's also um, on IFC other, Unlimited as well. Yes, um, or the Criterion streaming service or Amazon, uh, I think. Yeah, Voodoo actually does not have it. I was very surprised. Interesting. But uh, yeah, you can find it on Amazon, though. Yeah, well, anyways, and uh, Steve McQueen, from my understand, uh, he recently made Widows. There's a film of his I haven't seen, which he made after this one with Michael Fesbitter called Shame, which I want to see. Uh-huh. about sex addiction since he's 17 um mm-hmm. also though he recently is making a mini series i think and the first part of it just came out uh, really? so people should look that up i'm definitely going to look that up because i really love steve mcqueen um i think i might have mentioned this on a previous episode or maybe i just mentioned this to nick but uh it was a little bit of an oversight of mine to when we made our best of the 2010s to not include him as a possibility for one of the best directors of the 2010s. That said, I don't think I would have chosen him because Hunger is 2008. So, mm. um, <laughs> yeah, but he's definitely in the running. Um, also then, uh, I think that's the end of that. So do you want to tell people what movie we're doing next, Nick? Uh, yeah, except that I totally forgot what it was. Damn it. So did I. And I was hoping you'd remember. <laughs> uh, what did I say? Oh, Enemy. We're redoing Enemy. Enemy. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah. Okay. So we are finally doing Denny Villeneuve's Enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, before that, though, we will be doing an episode on uh, genre and, you know, just definitions for that. How we kind of like encapsulate all of that into how we talk about film. And exactly. just, I guess stories in general. But uh, yeah. Yeah, so there's more systems, more definitions, all that fun shit. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's why you're here, right? Um, Um, Yeah, so that will be a bonus episode at any point over the next, you know, seven to ten days. And around a week from now, um, we'll have our episode on Enemy, which we attempted to do some weeks ago, but it failed. And now we're prepared. We're prepared (laughs) to do it well. Yeah. All right. Uh, Well. Guys, I also want to let you know that we've sort of upped our game and we're going to continue to be doing that over the coming weeks and months. Uh, But we have a bunch of links below for social media and you can follow us there. And eventually here, probably within a couple of weeks, we'll be posting content pretty regularly there. Content that if you like this, I'm pretty sure you'll like what we're going to do. Um, Also, just make sure to subscribe to us. And I think that's it. So we will have a clip of Steve McQueen talking here to somebody about hunger. So cool. I'll see you later. Have a good night, guys. Bye. Film can actually be important. That what you do can actually have some kind of um, impact. When we did hunger, it became a thermometer to test the 
temperature of uh, what was going on in Belfast and uh, Northern Ireland and in Ireland and in, in, in the UK uh, regarding, the, the, regarding the hunger strike, regarding the dirty protest. Because I remember the, the premier in Belfast, people were hiding under tables and, and behind sofas, thinking, oh my God, it's going to go off, it's going to be terrible, the trouble's going to happen. But actually what happened was nothing. And through this film, then people can actually have a dialogue about that particular time. Steve came from the art world uh, and sort of didn't sort of adhere to a rule book or a formula that perhaps maybe other people that have sort of worked their way through the sort of industry have, have sort of, you know, their work is sort of um, grounded in that. Um, so that was kind of like unusual and refreshing and you could see it from sort of, you know, the responses to the rest of the crew. I feel pretty confident, but my first day, of course, you're, 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 you're crapping yourself in a way. Um, but after that, you, it's almost like I was thrown in the deep end. I like that because also what people do is they test you, of course. You know, you're your first, your 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 first time director. They then they throw everything at you as well as the kitchen sink. That was the first thing that all of us noticed. Is like you're not doing a wide, you know, establisher, mid, close up. Same for the other guy. It wasn't like that. We moved in a different way. There was almost a sort of fluid movement to it, and Steve. Uh, is sort of, you know, editing and using what he feels necessary at the time. So it was somebody that obviously came from a fresh place into the film world. And it's just a case of, you know, having to sort of uh, have your wits about you, but also having a sense of what the goal is. So I, I loved it. I mean, I, I, second day I was, I was up and running. I did get a, a great deal of focus from doing the sort of um, fasting part of the, the film. But, you know, the real crux of that film, I mean, the real sort of thing that we had to get right was the scene between the priest and Bobby, you know, Liam and myself. Um, if we didn't get that right, it was such a sort of muscular and sort of um, layered piece that, you know, we always wanted to sort of do it in one. Always like that. It was like that, it was like that in the script, so that was it. I mean, of course, there was a situation when after we showed it that people wanted us to do coverage and stuff like that. I said no. And of course, we had a little bit of an argy-bargy about that. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, what we did was what we did, and I didn't do anything more. And I think they, that people understood it after they saw it, that it was the best thing to do. Who was it that, uh, that tempted you into the feature film world? I mean, there you were, Turner Prize winning uh, mm -hmm. for your, what, what I suppose, for in, in, a, in, a, in a bad term people call video installations or mm -hmm. video work. Who was it that, that sort of said, mm, I know, I think we could, we could get a feature film going? Here. Well, I was always into film, because what happened with me when I left Goldsmiths, um, in 1993, university, when I was, I, was, I was in art school then, I went to NYU. I did grad film at NYU. And uh, I wanted to go to grad film at NYU. I applied and I got in, luckily, because of people like Jim Jermush, Spike Lee, Martin Scorsese, all these kind of people. Was, it, was Spike Lee teaching there at that time? Spike Lee was teaching there and, and, and Scorsese. But I, I was one of those situations where it was just a dream, you know, of course. At NYU, the, sort of, the kind of social filmmaking there was just, you know, I wanted to go there. So I was lucky enough to, to get in. And within three months, I left, and it was horrible, because it was one of those places for me where there was no real experimentation. In art school, what was interesting for, for, for me was that, you know, I was giving a studio and left alone. At first, it's hurrah, I, I could do what the hell I want to do. But what actually happens is you break down, because up until the age of 18, 19, you've been told what to do and how to do it. So that for the first time, you, you've getting this freedom, and you have to sort of rebuild yourself in a creating, with a, with, with, with in a creative form. Mm. So there, it was a huge liberation for me and uh, a great way to sort of, you know, make a certain kind of discipline for myself in order to sort of think even. So when I went to NYU, the whole idea of this film school 
which was almost like a Chinese circus. You come out and you get to do splits and everything. <laughs> there was a limitation. I remember, you know, I said it before that you know I left because they wouldn't let me throw throw the camera in the air. You know, they wouldn't let me throw the camera in. The air. Why not? What, what, we'll see what we get. What they could be interested. So you know, it was, that was the the, the, the the sort of last draw as such. That's because terribly hard. You said just delighted to get in. Yeah. And it must have been a very strong decision to leave. It was leave. very hard. It was very, very hard. It was very, very hard. Um, but you felt you had to because you were being constrained? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It was very strange. My father was a person who always said, get a trade. And my, 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 my mother always said to me, do what you want to do. So it was, I thought, OK, well, I'll be a filmmaker. I, I could be creative within this, but also have a trade. So the fact that I had to sort of you know, jack in the, the apprenticeship or jack in the trade was very hard. But um, it, was, you know, it, was, it was a blessing in disguise, really, because I came back to Britain and uh, just got on with the art stuff. So anyway, it was one of those situations where um, it was that situation where you have two extremes. You have you know, the IRA and you have Margaret Thatcher. And it's a case of a standoff. It's a case of who blinks first. The film is steeped in politics. Absolutely, but it's how one has to deal with those circumstances, how one has to uh, survive within that, within your environment. So it's, it's, it's drenched in politics, but it's about how one deals with that situation. Yeah, it is about politics, but it's actually about humans trapped in politics, trapped in political institutions, political mechanisms. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and that's what, where, where the humanity of your film wins out, it transcends those systems and, and the methods that one needs sure. to do it. I mean, there is obviously political doctrines in, on, on either side of, 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 of the fence as such, but at the end of the day, it's, it's always personal decisions which have to be made in order to sort of, how can I say, prop those things up. The scene which people like to talk about in hunger is mm. the uh, amazing 22-minute mm. midsection mm -hmm. of, of the film, the two-hander scene between Michael Fassbender and yeah. Liam Cunningham which is after so much physical uh, filmmaking, almost silent, really. You, you come at us with words, 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 words uh, in this extraordinary scene. Did you always see it as a, as a, as a one-shot, 22-minute two-hander? Well, you know, at the beginning when I, you know, myself and I said I, I want this to just... Because I knew after the physical aspect, because I conceived it in a way at the beginning, it was like a river. So... What it is, you're, you're lying on your back and you're going downstream, the first part of the film. And what it is, you're, you're, you're getting the sense of your surroundings, you know, the landscape and so forth. And all of a sudden, there's a rapid. So your surroundings are, has been, is being fractured. You know, your, 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 your surroundings has been disrupted, you know. And then the last part I wanted to be the, the waterfall, the loss of gravity, the sort of, you know, descent, you know, death. So for me, the conversation was a situation where it was almost like a... A breather. You, I knew the audience would be able to take it in, because this part of their brain, this part of the brain, would have been rested for such a long time that we've never had any of that, yeah. of that sort of the, 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 the sort of intensity, sort of the sort of you know philosophical, intellectual sort of uh, capacity of the film. It's all been physical. It's all been about the body to a certain extent. Mm. It's all been about the incarceration. Um, all have been. It's all always been about a certain kind of um, metaphorics in some ways. Mm. So all of a sudden. We have it. We have a situation which is not. It's not just going to be illustrated, but it's going to be explained. And to have that one shot um, was just a. It's rest of it. Let's just, just, just take your stuff in a minute. Let's just see what's going on. Mm -hmm. and that's all it was. Simple. Put a camera down and let two people have a conversation. And what Sean Sean Bobby um, did was fantastic because uh, he backlit it. So what was beautiful about that is that it's a situation where it's like great radio where you have two people talking and you're, you're focusing on yeah. that. 
has it, it takes a while to, yes, to yes, start yes, tuning yes, in. It does, but it's like anything else that you start doing, which is half decent. It always takes a little while, like, like running, and you're like, oh, God, blimey, yeah. And then after five to five to ten, fifteen minutes, you're in it, and it's, you're sort of, it's almost like you're sort of, you're meditating. So these kind of, this, this kind of sort of, uh, sort of uh, battle as such with words, because what was so interesting with our research, myself and Ender's research in, 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 in Belfast, was the people we spoke to, they're extraordinarily articulate in the sense of the way of how they're, what they're, how they're saying, what they're saying, what they're saying and how they deliver what they say. The reason why they are that is because they are pushing language to the absolute limit in order to sort of get to a point where they can actually um, understand what they're doing, who they are, and what they want. Yeah. So the, 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 the capacity is, is gone, it's, 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 gone so, it's, it's, it's so far. But then, of course, after a while, things turn into violence because it can only, it can only take you so far, and then the physical aspect takes, takes on another sort of... Uh, other aspects. So yeah, this there's was, a physicality under the words there as well, because the banter at the start yes, yes, yes. You know, is couched. Yes. You know, it starts oh, hiding under there. There's emotion sure, under sure. it, and yeah. so they're saying one thing, and as it's you say, totally different. It's just, I mean, just testing things out. You know, it's saying one thing, and yeah, you're quite right. And that was when, when you when you collaborated with Ender Walsh to, to write that. that oh. You said, "I want stuff that says that." Or. What it was, I knew that at the beginning it could. I mean, you know, you 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 were 40 minutes in the film, and you're you're hearing something. I don't want to get it straight into politics. It's all about. The banter. It's all about you know the banter and the sort of throwaway, the the nothingness of of, of words. Just happy to hear something. Mm -hmm. So in some ways they're warming up too, just like the audience is warming up. And then all of a sudden you sort of slip into, gradually you slip into some sort of you know, well, why 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 have you asked me here? And then we get onto it, of course. Uh, it is a uh, extraordinary th thing to do in in one shot, uh, but it, it does force the the audience to, to listen. But I think if, if the first time you see the film, mm -hmm. it, it is such a surprise that, uh, that that you have to kind of get get ready for it. You have to kind of get into it. By the end, you're hooked. And actually, when it ends, you're like, oh, well, you, you don't have a sense of time anymore. No, because what's interesting about this part of the film, of course, beforehand, it's been film time. This is the only, it's a, now it's real time. Mm -hmm. It's 20, 22 and a half minutes, or 17 and a half minute one take, and the whole scene is 22 and a half minutes. A real time, so you, even when you when you get to the end of that scene, you think, okay, yeah, that's about it's been about five ten minutes. I mean, a lot of people thought it was ten minutes mm -hmm. or less because they didn't understand, and, the, and it's twenty two and a half minutes. And then, of course, we have we go back to the physicality. It allows us to do the, the next scene, which is the sort of uh, sweeping of the uh, urine and the, and the detergent, yeah. because that sweeping and that noise shh, shh, is, is the lulling. It's basically allowing the audience to digest what they've just heard. That's but, my yeah. favourite scene. The first set I ever came on, the film set I came on, was my own. I never went on a film set before, and that was deliberate, because I didn't want to learn other people's habits. I wanted to come on set and find it myself, so I never actually, I never, my, only, my first step on a movie set was my own, was hunger. Sometimes you're constrained by fear, and sometimes, I, I always try to make fear my friend, because I know fear is coming. So like, hey, hi, hi, Fear, how are you doing? You know, I get familiar with it, you know, therefore, you know, you, you just bring it on. Come on, hi, Fear, how are you? You have to give over often to your first instincts. You try to stop yourself. You try to sort of manage it. No, that's, that can't be right. That doesn't sound, that sound, that doesn't sort of uh, sound correct. But sometimes the things which aren't, aren't correct are actually right. They're spot on, they're so accurate. But because they, they, they come at you in, in such a sort of uh, surprising way, you tend to sort of uh, try not to acknowledge it. This industry is so influential in changing people's opinions and minds. We have 
a duty to do that. Um, you know, we are the arts. And often we're the leader in changing people's minds and perceptions. So we have a huge obligation and it's just not the case that because other people do it, you know, it's difficult for us. We can do it, we can change people's minds and uh, understanding of, of our everyday and uh, what we see.